0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series called One, in which we are rediscovering the heart of God and learning that joining Jesus' mission means sharing his heart for the one. Thanks for joining us. Have you ever thought about how many invitations you receive every day? Maybe you don't think of it that way, but we really do receive lots of invitations. This week alone, in the mailbox, I received several invitations. I received an invitation to join Capital One Quicksilver Rewards. Uh, We received an invitation for our daughter to apply to Bradley University. She's a senior, so these are coming fast and furious. I received another invitation, this time to join American Express. Now, listen, those are just a few examples. If you open up my email box every day, I will get even more invitations in order to join something. A lot of them from politicians these days as well. But have you ever had an invitation that changed your life forever? I've had several of those in my life. One came when my youth pastor, when I was a senior in high school, asked me to speak to 200 other high school students in our general area. That changed the trajectory of my life. Another important invitation I received was in college, my senior year of college, when Peggy, my wife, gave me the invitation to begin courting her for marriage. Another important invitation I got was from a pastor when I was in school in Princeton, New Jersey, who said, hey, I think you need to be teaching and preaching and visiting hospitals and doing pastoral things. And that just totally changed the calling and direction of my life. And then just one more, 18 or so years ago, I got a call from a church called Cherry Hills in the middle of nowhere, Springfield, Illinois, And that changed the trajectory of my life. Each of those invitations played a huge role in my life. But friends, I got to tell you, there was no more important invitation than one I received one night when my dad walked into my room and invited me to follow Jesus Christ. That, more than anything, has changed my life forever. It changes everything. It changes the way I think about money. It changes the way I think about other people. It changes the way I think about how I use my time. It changes everything about my life and directs me to know here's what matters most. All because one person loved me enough to give me an invitation to a relationship with Jesus. I would guess a lot of you, whether you're in the room, you're watching at home, you're in the overflow room, something probably similar happened to you one day. Someone in your life loved you enough to give you an invitation to follow Jesus and your life has not been the same ever since. In fact, one of the cool things as we head up into this new series we're going to do is we're going to hear from one person in our church family every single week and their story of someone who cared for them enough to invite them. So take a look at Randy's story this morning.
1: For the first 17 years of my life, uh, my parents took my sisters and I to a church which was very liberal, and so the highest ideal that was held up to me was that Jesus was a nice man and I should be nice to. So I spent my first 17 years trying to be nice. My mom uh, was probably the greatest influence in my life trying to be nice, and she would tell me what I wasn't nice to my sisters, to my teachers, but that was a big goal was to be nice enough, just like Jesus was. When I was 17, my mom died. And so that kind of left me adrift because the one who moderated my niceness was suddenly gone. I didn't know how to be nice. About a year after my mom died, I went away to college to Eastern Illinois in Charleston. And uh, I found a lot of things that weren't nice. I no longer had somebody telling me to be nice. So I sought after fun instead of niceness. I joined a fraternity. And as God would have it, my roommate was a Christian. And he started telling me about Jesus. Now I knew God was real but I thought Jesus was just a nice guy. And he started telling me that Jesus was God's son, that Jesus had actually died for my sins, and he made him seem like a real guy. I never thought of that before. At the same time, I was led to a campus minister who had an immense amount of patience with me. His name was Bob Ross. And he listened to my silly questions and my nonsensical stuff. And while he didn't approve of the activities I was involved in, he never condemned me. He just loved me. And he introduced me to some men and women on a fellowship who also loved me. They were a lot kinder than me. They were, they did the right stuff and I didn't. But they never condemned me and they loved me. And finally on January 24th, 1972, five years to the day after my mom passed away, I accepted Jesus and I was baptized that day. And I came to realize that I could try to be nice, I could try to be, have fun, but that was trying and an effort people loved me into the kingdom. I didn't remember any preaching, any sermons, but I remember a lot of people who loved me.
0: What a great story, all it took was for one person, in that case two people, his roommates and a campus minister to love him enough that he was open to the greatest invitation that's ever been offered to human beings. Now, I'm sharing all of this because as we've been reflecting on our church this past year and even before that, I just got to say there's some really good things happening in our church family. Our giving, even during this COVID time, has continued to be uh, just amazing, which all credit goes to you. Thank you so much for continuing that. Our efforts outside of our church's walls here, right in our community, is expanding. I mean, even just a few weeks ago, some of you know, we were able to bless teachers in our community, praying over them, providing some of the materials that they might need. That's just one example of the many other things. But we've also noticed some discouraging signs within our church family. Jeff talked about that a couple of weeks ago in his message. Just, I think it's just normal for all of us during this six months of COVID to kind of disengage a little bit in the things that are happening. We've also noticed that our life group numbers are declining, which is kind of amazing to me because the one thing we need most during this time of COVID is to be gathering with other people in a small group setting. But most of all, we've noticed that our inviting levels have gone down. Now, I'm not just talking about COVID. This is like a couple of year thing that's been going on here. And we've come to realize that this is a massive growth area for us as a church to have a heart for people who don't yet know Jesus. Now, some of you know the statistics that after a person becomes a follower of Jesus, in about two years, their level of invitation to others drops almost down to zero. And so that's why we have to continue to talk about this as a church family. We have to fan the flame of caring about people who don't yet know Jesus because... This is the reason the church exists. In fact, Brian already mentioned it, but let's read it together this time. Here is our vision. If you're a part of Cherry Hills, this is the vision you're signing up for as a church. Let's read it together. To see people of every generation giving themselves fully to Jesus and his mission. And what is Jesus' mission? To share himself, to invite others into a life with him. And that's what we want to talk about together in the next six weeks as we start this new series called One. If you're following in your notes there this morning with me, in this series, we're going to be learning that joining Jesus' mission means sharing his heart for the one. Now, here's some good news for you. To be clear, this series isn't going to be about us sharing some evangelism tricks or techniques or making you feel guilty about your lack of inviting other people, because none of that stuff matters until we first share God's heart for the one, caring for someone like my dad did for me, caring enough for someone like Randy's roommate and that campus minister did for him. Now, the language of the one comes from Luke chapter 15, and we'll be spending most of our series in that passage. But today, I just wanted to start off this series by reminding ourselves, or as we say in our series sentence here, we just want to reconnect to this idea of God's heart. So I want to invite you back to the basics. Take your Bible and turn it to John chapter 3, verse 16. Now, the truth is, I also have that printed on your notes, uh, and we're going to read that out loud together. But if you just want to understand the context of it, it's John 3.16. Now, I'm sure you're probably aware of the fact that of the over 30,000 verses in the Bible, John 3.16 is the most well-known. This verse is so popular, it's made its way into our mainstream culture. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Today, football starts. You've probably seen John 3.16 somewhere like there before. Or maybe some of you like to shop at Forever 21. Have you ever noticed this on a Forever 21 bag there? They have John 3.16 printed on the bottom of their bags. Or some of you have seen John 3.16 on this famous person's eyes before. Tim Tebow. And then last but not least, if you have been fortunate enough in your life, you have seen it on one of these. I could give you many, many more examples, but I think the point is clear and obvious. John 3.16 is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, and that leads to two things. It gives us an opportunity, but it can also create a challenge for us. And the challenge for you sitting in this room and at home who have come to know Christ is this verse has become overly familiar to us. So sometimes it's easy for us to forget just how majestic and amazing it really is. It's easy to tune out, but I encourage you not to do that. It's also an opportunity for some of you because you may have never heard the heart of what is behind this famous verse. And I got to tell you, it has the potential to change your life forever starting today. And so let's dive in together and learn what we can about how we can apply John 3.16 to our lives. Now, just a little context. In John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus' whole paradigm about God is that he has to do all these really good things in order to get God to love him. He has to do good religious works. Some of us still fall into that temptation, don't we? I have to earn God's love through what I do. And so Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, telling him that's the wrong way to think about it. That is not the God that he has come from. And we get to this climactic verse in John 3.16, which I'm going to have us read out loud together there on our notes. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I want to break that one verse into three parts with you right now. First, we learn about God's heart. Second, we learn about God's mission. And then third, we learn about God's promise in just this one single verse. So what do we learn about God's heart? Well, the first part of the verse says, for God so loved the world. Right away, if you're on your notes, this verse tells us that the heart of God is motivated by what? Love. Now, the word Jesus uses here is important because in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there's actually three words he could have used for the word love here. The first word is the Greek word eros, which talks about this physical affection, sexually affectionate kind of love. Unfortunately, I feel like that's the only kind of love people talk about today in our culture. A second word he could have used is the word filial love, which describes just this friendship love, this companionship love, this enjoyment we feel when we're gathered together with other people. We have our life group tonight, and we will hopefully experience some of this filial love as we gather together as a small group community. And then finally, there's the Greek word agape love. And that's the word used for unconditional love. It's a kind of love that says, I am deciding to love you. I'm choosing to love you no matter how I feel about you right now. If you're following on your notes, agape love is an act of the will that leads to action on behalf of its object. An act of the will that leads to action on behalf of its object. Which word do you think Jesus uses here? agape. Sadly, sometimes when Christianity is presented, it's presented in such a way that God the Father has to be pacified. He has to be persuaded in order to love and forgive people. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes there's this picture drawn of this stern, angry God the Father and we con- contradict that with Jesus who's gentle and loving, but the truth couldn't be further from, from what, that, what that picture paints. If you're fu- If this text tells us that God loved the world the moment he created it. At the start of everything was the love of God. Now, do you think that would have been important for Nicodemus to hear? This super religious person? That it all starts with God's love. God's love is his heart. I think it's important. I think it's even more important maybe for our culture and our world today where there is so much hatred being spewed. We start the gospel message with God's love. Listen, always remember, if you're ever to share the story of the gospel, you start with God's love, his creation, created in the image of God, every single person. The entire reason God created us was because he loved us. He loved us so much, in fact, he took this big risk. He gave us freedom to choose. You see, without freedom, there wouldn't ever be a chance for real love. I can't force my kids to love me. It no longer is love if I force them to love me. God could have made a bunch of robots, but there never would have existed real love between human beings and God. Sadly, the story goes on to tell us that we rejected God's love. We chose not to love God. We chose to love ourselves instead. But the good news is he never stopped loving us. He never stopped loving us, even though we stopped loving him. The second thing to notice about God's heart is how far his love extends to the world. If you're following on your notes, God's heart of love extends to the whole world. Now check this out. He doesn't just love people who love him. If I'm honest with you, my agape love basically extends to the people I like. It doesn't extend much beyond that, but God's agape love extends to people I don't like. God's agape love extends to people we sometimes end up hating. None of us like to think this way, though, right? None of us like to think, well, I don't extend my love that far. Only God loves in a perfect sense. And I just want to remind you, follower of Jesus, in, these, in this room or at home, The Bible tells us that at one time, guess what? All of us were considered enemies of God. We don't like to think that way. We like to think, well, I was a pretty good person. I deserved Jesus in my life. But the Bible is crystal clear that no, we all have walked away from God at one time. We were all enemies of his because of that. But even so, even when we did that, God's heart never changed for you. His heart never changed for me. His heart is a heart of love. And here's the thing. Jesus now calls us, those of us who have received his gift of love, to love people the same way he did. And what could be more loving than sharing God's love for them? This leads to the second part of this verse, God's mission. Because God so loved the world, because he loved it in agape love, he chose to do something about it. He went on a mission of love. And we're told here was his plan, his master plan. He sent his one and only son. We're so used to that. But no matter how many times I read it, I'm still filled with awe that the bright and morning star, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, stepped down into human flesh and became one of us. Right here, we see God's love is more than an emotion or an affection towards us. He expressed his love through an amazing action. He sent his only son. That is a sacrificial act of love. And it's the basis for, from which we should understand all of the Christian faith. Jesus entered the mess of humanity out of love. He lived as a human being out of love. When he taught his disciples, he did it out of love. When he was lifted on that cross, he did it because God is love. Now, what exactly did Jesus come to do for us? What was his mission in all of that? Well, Jesus says it himself in Luke 19.10, which I have printed on your notes there. Let's read it out loud together. It says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's it. You want Jesus' mission statement in one sentence? Memorize that verse. He has come to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. This is why I've come. If you're following, Jesus' mission is to restore our relationship with God. To to save that which was lost. When we walked away from God, our relationship with God was lost. But because God so loved the world. He sent his one and only son to rescue us, to restore us to our original intention. And what we see over and over again in Jesus' ministry is he will go to great lengths to share that with even one person. One person. In fact, the context of that verse in Luke 19 is he's having this conversation with a guy named Zacchaeus. Some of you remember Zacchaeus, the really short guy who had to climb up a tree. See, here's the thing about Zacchaeus. Nobody loved him. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were the enemies of the Jews, and yet Jesus is love. And he sought out this hated tax collector and invited him to come and follow him. I got to ask you, are there still people like Zacchaeus out there in our world today? People who are hated? people who are lonely, people who are wandering and depressed and hopeless, people who have gotten themselves tangled up in destructive habits and destructive relationships, people like you, people like me. It's just for those people that Jesus came. Now listen, please don't miss this as we continue this series in the upcoming weeks. Get rid of the guilt. Get rid of the shame. It is God who calls someone to himself. It is Jesus who calls a person to himself. However, he invites us to join him in that incredible mission. Pressure's off. You don't have to convince someone. You don't have to have all the fancy words. You just have to join Jesus in what he's already doing in this world and care enough for one person that you love them like Jesus loved them. This leads to the final part of this verse, God's promise, which is that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's the greatest promise in the Bible, and there's a lot of promises in the Bible. But There's no greater promise than this right here. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. Perish literally means someone who is utterly lost but have eternal life. If you're following, God's promise is whoever believes in Jesus is made New. They're given a brand new life, an eternal life. The old life that leads to death and destruction is gone. The new life that leads us to eternity and fulfillment is here. Now, the question is, how does Jesus accomplish this? Wasn't he just a a man? What's so special about him? How can we receive eternal life through Jesus? Well, notice what Jesus says about it in Matthew 20, verse 28. Again, on your notes there, would you read that with me? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The key word there is ransom. You probably know a little bit about that word. In these days, the word ransom was used for someone who paid the price to free a slave. They paid a certain price, and then they would set that slave free. Some of you know the story of when Lincoln's body was stolen from his tomb after he died. And the thieves asked for a ransom. They wanted a certain amount of money in order to give back Lincoln's body. It's the same idea here, but the hard thing for us to hear is that means we are in slavery to something. And we needed to be freed from something. And according to the Bible, that's the case. We are in slavery to death. The moment you're born, you're on your way to death. We are held in slavery that. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. We are sinners by our nature, but because God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son to become our ransom. His sacrificial death on a cross paid the price that we could never pay on our own. And according to this verse, all we need to do is what? Believe. Now, like the word love, I think the word belief needs to be a little more clearly defined. To say believe today just means I mentally agree or I mentally assent to something. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say you're forced to go to one of those, you know, work team building experiences. Have you ever had to do one of those, endure one of those? And they want you to do that trust fall thing. Now, you can stand there on the edge there and say, I believe, I mentally agree that my teammates are going to catch me as I fall down here. But there's a difference between mentally agreeing to that and actually trusting them and doing that. Yes? If you're on your notes here, the word for belief means to trust, to place confidence in. And so listen, it's not until you actually fall that you are really believing in this sense. To believe in Jesus means you take that trust fall. You put your confidence fully in him. His death was for you. But then listen. You also then trust his words. And you follow his example and his life. You are obedient to him, the Bible says. That's taking the full plunge, believing the life Jesus offers me isn't just a ticket to heaven. It's the best life possible now. Jesus said it this way in John 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. For too long we've believed eternal life just means my ticket to heaven and now I live however I want. Let's get rid of that idea. Jesus came so you can have the best life possible right now. Life to the full, the abundant life. And we have to get to the point where we trust God That what he says really is the abundant life. Some of the rules we don't like. Actually, it's the abundant life. Some of the things he calls us to do, that's the abundant life. Listen, nothing's going to halt our death. But God says, I love you so much. I'm going to not let death have the final say. I'm going to invite you to life, the best life right now and the best life forever. And all you have to do is believe. What love, what grace. If you're listening today, if you're here in this room, you're at home and you have not put your trust in Christ yet, this text is one of the clearest invitations in the Bible for you. Listen, God knows who you are. God knows what you've done. God knows what you've not done. And despite all that, he still loves you. He loves you. And the greatest demonstration of his love for you, you've seen it right here, is he sent his one and only son to seek you, to save you, and to ransom your life forever. And his invitation is right here, right now for you. All you gotta do, step into it. Begin to follow Jesus. Begin living the abundant life that you were created to live. But I can't stop there. We need to talk honestly right now about what this verse means for our church. You see, this was Jesus' heart. It was his mission, and it's his promise. And many of us in this room and at home have received this incredible gift of love. But here's the thing. That's not the end of the story for us. I love how someone once said, if this was the end of the story, God would have killed us the moment we believed and brought us up to heaven. But it's not the end of the story. He's left us here as his children. He's left us here, as Paul says, as his ambassadors of his heart and his mission and his promise. As adopted sons and daughters of God, we follow our brother Jesus' example now. And we go after his heart and his mission and his promise with others. Jesus put it pretty directly right before he went up to heaven in what's called the Great Commission. Let's remind ourselves of this as a church. Let's read it out loud there on our notes. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, the very end of the age. If you're on your notes, as his children, we now share his heart with others. One of my wife's favorite pastimes is to compare which child looks like which parent. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, they just look just like you, or they just look like him. Uh, We were just talking about it this week, in fact, how Kirsten, our daughter, has my exact same skin color. And Will, our son, has Peggy's exact same skin color. What's the reason for that? Why do our children sometimes look like us and bear our resemblance? It's called DNA. And God's DNA is love. God's DNA is love. And so as his children, we should be displaying his DNA to the world around us. Now, I think we all wholeheartedly agree with everything I'm saying today, right? Yes, greatest mission. Uh, yes, I'm called as a sent one to go out. But if you're on your notes, I think there's a huge gap between our belief and our behavior. Yeah? It's the best news ever given. But I'm going to keep it to myself. I mean, can you imagine if I had a way for you to get 10000 free dollars just like that? All you have to do is click something on the computer. That'd be a pretty great invitation. But how much better of an invitation is eternal life to those we love? And so how are we going to address this gap? Well, this is what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. But I just got to be honest. Right now, my temptation for you would be to give you all kinds of tricks and techniques, how to start conversations, books on what you need to know, and all those kind of things. But I've just come to realize, here's the truth. Again, if you're on your notes. Until we share God's heart for others, we won't share God's, share his good news with others. And so we're starting from the beginning in this series. How do I begin to share God's heart for others? And friends, you're going to be glad for this. I only have one application for you today. And here it is. Who is one person in your life that you love who is far from God? Now, you may have more than one, but can you at least name one? If you're on your notes there, who is your one? I want you to write their name, their first name down there, right on that paper. Who is your one? Who is someone God is revealing to you to love, to begin to pray for, to share his heart for them with you? And start doing that this week. That's it. Start praying for your one. You may even want to start this way. I have to start this way. Start praying to God that I would begin to share his heart for the one. Sometimes we just need to start there. I really hope you're in a life group right now because in these next six weeks, we're going to be really going hard after this. We're writing questions for you to discuss after the message. I also want to make you aware that we're providing a, um, it's, it's a devotional, a 40-day devotional to go along with this series. You can get it from our website. Or you can grab one at the blue tent on your way out here. We're asking life groups to use both of these things as we begin to fan the flame of sharing God's heart for the one throughout this series. If you're not yet in a group, we've already mentioned this, uh, but you can text this number to CH, CH groups to 94090. If you're at home, you can do that. If you're here, feel free to stop by the blue tent. Today's the last day for you to sign up in a life group. And I want to encourage you to do that so much better to share God's heart with others. We're even going to have a challenge for life groups at the end of this six-week series. So that's where we're headed in this series. But right now, I just want to close with a story that impacted me probably more than any story ever has. I heard it in 2002 by a pastor named John Orper. You can follow along on the screen if you want. You can close your eyes right now and just listen to this story. But friends, this is what it's all about. Several years ago, we took a vacation and we went to Massachusetts and we visited a little museum on Nantucket Island. It was devoted to a volunteer organization that was formed centuries ago, over 300 years ago. In those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous and given storms in the Atlantic and the real rocky coasts of Massachusetts, many, many lives were lost real close to the shore within a mile or less of the land. And a group of people who lived on that island couldn't stand to think about all these people going down so close to them. So they went into the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was originally called the Humane Society. We think about animals with that name now, but in those days, that was a life-saving deal for them. They built little huts that dotted the shore. You can still see one of them in this museum. They built little huts containing boats and rescue equipment. They were sometimes called huts of refuge. Huts of refuge. And people were posted in those huts all the time, and their job was just to keep watching the sea. And any time a ship went down, the word would go out. They would devote everything. They would risk themselves to save every life they could. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somebody was watching. Everybody was willing. They did it for no money. They did it for no recognition. They did it just because they prized human life. And to remind them how seriously they took this task and what was at stake, they adopted a motto. I love this motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That is a catchy little recruiting slogan, don't you think? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. You wouldn't think that would entice a whole lot of people into joining them, but it did. It is a fascinating thing to read accounts in that museum of people who risked everything, even their lives to save other people they had never met, faces they had never seen, names they might not ever know. Over time, things changed, and after a while, what would come to know as the U.S. Coast Guard started to take over this task. And for a little while, the Coast Guard and the Life Saving Society worked together side by side. Eventually, the idea that carried the day was, let the professionals do it. They are better trained. They get paid for it. Volunteers stop manning the little huts. They stop searching the coastline for sinking ships. They stop sending out teams to rescue people. And it is a funny thing, they couldn't even bring themselves to disband. And the life-saving society still exists today. It meets every once in a while in in Boston or someplace in New England to have dinners. And they hand out awards for things like community service. They enjoy each other's company. They sponsor programs. They get together. They are not just in the life-saving business anymore. They are, excuse me, they are just not in the life-saving business anymore. They don't scour the coastline anymore to see if anybody is going down. They don't know the thrill anymore of what it is to risk themselves to save a life that could perish. They don't speak those words to each other anymore. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They are just not in the life-saving business anymore. It happens all the time. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a month. But over time, a church forgets it is in the life-saving business. It usually doesn't disband, at least not until much later. People still meet. They still enjoy each other's company. They still use words like community. They still have services and buildings and staffs and programs. They might even be involved in various forms of community service. They are just not sending out teams anymore for people who are going down. They are just not really scouring neighborhoods and offices and schools and networks and cities to see if there is somebody that needs to be saved. They forgot maybe. That Jesus put this rescue effort in the hands of volunteers who would love the people that God loves so much and adopt for themselves the motto, motto, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. They have buildings and budgets and staffs and meetings. They are just not in the life-saving business anymore. It can happen to a church. It can happen to a small group. It can happen to an individual. And don't think it can't happen in your church. Don't think it can't. Don't think it can happen. can't happen to you. Whether or not we stay in the life-saving business is in the hands of the people in this room or at home. Jesus is still looking for people who are willing to go into the life-saving business. That is what the church does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost that you are in the life-saving business. And many of us in this room can say you have saved me. confess that it's easy to lose sight of that mission. It's easy to lose sight of loving other people in this way, enough to invite them to the greatest relationship that one could ever have. So we take time right now to just let you examine our hearts. Is there anything we need to repent of or confess of? Take time to do that with Jesus. pray for this series these next six weeks that we could rediscover your heart that we would share your heart and right now in this time we even want to take time to to pray for that person or those people we wrote on our notes there love nothing more than to condemn us, to guilt us, to shame us. Don't let him have any place in our hearts. Let us fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we step out of this room, let us see what you see. Let us see people the way you see them. Let us share your heart, your heart of love. Together, everybody prayed and said, Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org
1: or follow us on Facebook.